Hello, everybody, and welcome to Rowing Chat, the podcast for the sport of rowing. I'm Rebecca Caro, and back in 2013, I thought it would be a brilliant idea to start podcasting. Little did I know I'd still be doing it now. I like to introduce you to people who have got novel approaches to the sport of rowing. Some have been coaches, some have been athletes, some of them are super fans. And today, I'm delighted to welcome for his first rowing chat, Sean Colgan. Good morning. Nice to see you and thank you for coming on the show. Well, I'm live here at our farm in Hawke's Bay, New Zealand. Fantastic. And I'm equally live here on a lifestyle block, which if you don't know what that is, look it up, folks. Now, Sean, tell the listeners a little bit about you and your background in the sport of rowing. Well, I grew up in a coaching launch. My father was a rower, about a 10-time national champion and Canadian champion in the U.S. And his first job in 1950 was the assistant coach at Columbia University. And then in the summer times, he would coach in Cuba at the San Fuegos Yacht Club for about four years. And actually, one of his, I suppose you'd call them godchildren, great godchildren, raced for the U.S. this year in the straight four. A guy called Gus Rodriguez. So Rowan goes back a long time. That's 70 something years of coaching the grandfather, then his son, and now his grandson is racing. Uh, so he coached at Columbia, then he coached at Penn, then he got a real job. Oh. <laughs> Selling insurance and being a school teacher. So growing up in rowing, I started as a coxswain at the age of 12, 13. Mm-hmm. So I was in the 1968 Olympic trials as a 12-year-old in a Cox pair. But the difficult part was when we were racing, Vesper Botkov had several Cox pairs, but not enough coxswains, which is normal. Mm-hmm. So one of the boats had a 110-pound bag of rock salt, and they steered it as a normal straight pair. And I'm 12. I'm not really sure what's going on. And after we had beat them in a race, they came to the dock, threw the rock salt in the water and said, that's it. We're getting another bag. This one's no good. And I thought, wow, these guys are tough. I better not lose any races. Then I started to row in high school and went on to University of Pennsylvania, raced there, and then raced for the national team. Overall, I was on 10 national teams, so two juniors. And then two lightweights, I was seven seat and then stroke of the lightweight eight for a silver and bronze medal. And then one of the, how do you call it, difficult times of my life was switching from the lightweight eight in 1976 to the Cox pair at the 1978 World Championships in Carapiro. Now, I don't think any lightweight has been that stupid to go to the heaviest boat in the regatta. And then after that, I was in the US 8 for 79, 80. And then I was working full time. So I had to move on to sculling. So I was a single sculler. I was a spare in 82 and then the single sculler in 83 and then in the quad in 84. That is ahead of a career, Sean. But you've never left rowing, have you? You can't leave rowing. 
it, it's impossible. How do you live without your blood flowing in your veins? I mean, there are some rowing vampires out there that can actually get up and walk away. But growing up in Philadelphia with the river, being involved with the national teams and with my university, it's difficult to leave. And why would you want to? There are so many friendly people around. Yes, and even unfriendly yeah. people, but they're still your friends. Exactly. We were and talking, so we were at one of the world championships with my children, and one of my daughters said, why are you talking to that guy? You don't even like him. I said, I know, but I raced in a boat with him, so he's your friend. Whether you like him or not, it's like family. Yep, yep, that's so true. Now, today, we're going to talk about one of your very special coaches. Introduce the listeners to Ted Nash. Ted Nash was probably the most iconic coach I've run across in my life, and probably most people did. He was, he came out of uh, Washington State. He won a gold medal in the 1960 Olympics in the Coxless Four. And then four years later, they won a bronze medal in the Coxless Four. And then he became a coach at the University of Pennsylvania. And I probably met him there in 1965 when I was 10. Well, I was racing against his boats as a 12 year old. Of course. <laughs> Of course. And with my father uh, being a former coach and a student at Penn, we were always at Penn football games, uh, rowing races, you name it. So I met Ted there and he is a larger than life person, both being six foot five, an absolute chiseled, large size Arnold Schwarzenegger. Ooh, I like him already. Besides you know, his national service, he was an acrobatic pilot and then a Green Beret instructor. And he lived, he lived life very large. So growing up, everyone in rowing had a Ted Nash story. You would swap them like currencies. At any rowing regatta, there was a story. Like a baseball card set. You never got the whole set. You never got the whole set. But you're always interested in more stories because they're always and only probably 85 percent were true. But you didn't know which 85 percent and you weren't about to bet against a story that someone told because it could very well be real. Now, a man of that caliber and about whom many stories circulate is a worthwhile subject for a book. And you spent your COVID lockdown very profitably. Yes. Well, I've kept a rowing diary since I was 19. And I still keep it going. I'm on, let me see, up on the wall. I'm up on the 41st book. And so I would collect a lot of the Ted stories from practices and things and put them in there. And my wife, Bibi, kept telling me, you need to write a book, you need to write a book. But there's never really time to write a book. So during lockdown, isolated here in New Zealand on a farm, I thought, okay, it's not going to get better than this to write the book. <laughs> so I contacted probably 50 or 100 people. And then I appointed book captains. 
from the different classes at Penn. So I couldn't do it all myself. And I wouldn't want to do it all myself because Ted is an iconic person that everybody enjoys in telling stories and love Ted. So I had a, a class from the 1960s, Gardner Cadwalder. I had Hugh Stevenson from the 70s. I had John Chatsky from the 70s and 80s. I appointed Jason Reed from the 2004 Olympic Eight to do the Olympians. So we collected collectively probably 150 stories. Wow. And as they um, came in, you suddenly with a deluge of stories. Well, you just can't pile them on top of them in arriving chronological order. No. So after reading the story several times and cogitating upon it, I divided, I think, into eight chapters with Mm -hmm. a theme. Each one has a theme where the stories would fit into. So probably the book probably went through at least three major rewrites. Okay. And then when the pictures started arriving, then pictures went into the to the draft and then pictures came out as new pictures came in. It was much more involved than I ever thought it would be. It might have been easier to write a biography, but Ted mm-hmm. never wanted a biography. He was approached several times and said no. And I thought, what a better way to remember someone than to tell the story of Ted as other people saw him. Not as wins and losses, but as rainy days, sunny days, crabs, etc. Fantastic. So what did you call the book? Uh, my wife came up with the title, The Book of Ted. Oh, perfect. It's just, you know, we're. what do you name a book? And Ted is known as Ted, not Ted Nash, not Ted A. Nash. Some people call him Coach. So The Book of Ted seemed like a very possibility and it stayed that way and so here is the front cover on which it says very clearly the book of ted olympian coach mentor ted a nash and there's a photo of him as a young man standing outside presumably the pen boathouse no that's university oh i think that's the boathouse in the at the rome olympics when they just won their gold medal Oh, fantastic. Cool. So talk us through... USA racing shirts. He is indeed. And so here we have the, um, the chapters. And talk us through some of the titles that you've chosen here. Well, there's the, there's the legend of Ted, which is how do you find this guy in the middle of nowhere? I mean, he's known around the world and he's legendary with his story. So a lot of the first book is first chapter is just about Ted as he approached other people around the world and people knowing him. The second chapter, himself a warrior, uh, deals with some of his training methods, some of his races and a lot of Ted fighting for crews, fighting the weather, being a warrior. Actually, I sent him to Iraq during the Iran-Iraq war on a business for me. So he actually was a warrior. That's in there too. Then there's True Grit, a really 
bearing down, of him helping people bear down, of teaching people to bear down, of himself bearing down, and teaching people that they know more than they think they know. They can push themselves further than they ever thought they could push themselves. And then there's Ted the Tactician, of how he, I wouldn't say manipulated, but came up with race plans, taught people how to get their own goals, tactician both for your own goals and for winning a race or training for a race. Fierce but tender, some of his classic stories of being very tender with people when things happen. He's not just a warrior and a tough guy. He had an amazing warm heart. And some of the best stories are in uh, Chapter 88. Uh, the next one is Champion of the Underdog. Ted was one of the founding members of the National Association of uh, Women's Rowing. He okay. started that back in the 70s because the United States had the National Association of Amateur Oarsmen which was the precursor to U.S. To US rowing. Yes. So we helped start that with two other guys. He was almost thrown off the Olympic team by the manager because of his work with the women back in the early 1960s. They were not at all grateful for Ted pushing for women to row. And then Ted coached several women in the Olympics and the World Championships. Yes. Sportsmanship and teamwork, how we would get people in the crew to think and align themselves together, both absorbing uh, new recruits in the University of Pennsylvania crews, also putting together votes for the World Championships and Olympics from guys from all over this country with different school rivalries and how we put them together to make winning crews. And then commitment to a goal of how he would help people work together and stories of how we work together as a team to accomplish those common goals that we worked on in the previous chapter. And then final chapter was Ted's own words. I found wow. a lot of his notes, speeches. Uh, Ted was great at handing out things. He was always handing out circulars. He was always writing you notes with a big, wide-tip pen. His race plans would be on big billboards, and you'd have the race course, and you'd have, if you're ahead by a length, do this. If you're behind, he'd have a flip-up and say, do a 20. So it was interesting. I was going through one of my bags 10 years ago, and found a race plan he gave me from my single race in the 1983 Pan Am Games. It was about four pages long. Wow. And it was very nice. I, somehow it stayed at the bottom of a gym bag in the attic. Gosh. Now, I would love to hear some of the stories that you have carefully curated into this book. What have you got for us? Well, one of my favorite is actually the first the first chapter, it's the first story. Looking for page 21. This is from John Campbell. 
I was in Florence 25 years ago with my soon-to-be wife. We were walking on the Pont Vecchio across the Arno River. I knew there was a rowing club under this bridge carved out of stone, an underground boathouse of sorts. I walked in and saw shells everywhere. And an Italian man in an old polo shirt with crossed doors on it. I tried to strike up a conversation and asked him if I could take a gig for a row. He said no. And then he noticed I was wearing a Vesper pullover and asked if I was from Philadelphia. I answered yes. He said, do you know a Ted Nash? <laughs> and John said, I rode for him in the 1976 Olympic trials. I love a diss of Ted Nash, he said. Take any boat in the house. The man had been in the Italian four without that got the silver medal, the Ted's gold medal straight for in Rome in 1960. They had stayed friends. I wrote a nice single on Arno. It's a small world, especially for Ted. That is delightful. And, and what you wouldn't call it happenstance if you knew the sport of rowing because those things happen. Oh, and with Ted, it happens all the time. Now, apart from the one you found in the bottom of your gym bag and the joy of reading 41 volumes of your own um, notes over the lockdown, have you got one of your own stories? Because I'm guessing you must have contributed some. Yes. Well, there's, I'll tell you a few short, short ones. In the fierce but tender chapter, this was in 1976, before the advent of ergs. So Saturday practices in the winter was usually running around the basketball court forever, having vicious and violent games of water polo doing push-ups and sit-ups. Anyway, at one point, we were in the wrestling room, and Ted, as a judo instructor for the Green Berets, was having us do different judo things so we would be prepared for later in life, or as Ted would say, in a bar fight. It consisted of running, throwing yourself, rolling on your shoulder, jumping, hopping back up, and then you had to karate chop and kick a big uh, full-size punching bag. Okay. This is not a normal practice for rowers anywhere in the world. Anyway, we all enjoyed it. It was great. But the next day, Sunday, my sh right shoulder was killing me. So I went to the sports medicine people. And they said, you partially separated your right shoulder. Don't row. Okay, so I went to see Ted Monday morning. I said, Ted, sports medicine, separated my, partially separated my shoulder. I can't row for three weeks. Ted said, uh, right shoulder, correct? I said, yes. And he goes, and you row bow side. I said, yes. He goes, okay. Switch to stroke side and slide your right hand down the shaft. You'll be fine. Okay. So, now, so you did. I did. So I continued rowing. But, you know, now, of course, that would be some sort of microaggression. But for Ted, that's just what you did. And you appreciated it. Oh, and then I said, uh, how about some sympathy? And he picked, up, he picked up his telephone and said, call your mother. I think that was cheeky of you. You must have known him jolly well to know that asking for sympathy was never going to get you what you thought I, you were asking I was for. just trying. I was pushing him. Then another time we were 
doing pieces up the river. And one of the coxswains said, Ted, there's a, a dead body off my starboard bow. And Ted said, keep rowing. He'll be there, there on the way back. <laughs> and sure enough, he was downstream a little bit more. And Ted pulled him to the side and took him to the dock where the police boat was. Wow. So a man who coached all his life, but he also had a huge mystique about him, partly to do with his military background. Yes, he was. Because you can't talk about it, can you, if you're a Green Beret? No, he it's... couldn't talk about anything he did. and But it was always there. He usually wore a military cap. We would do a lot of commando runs in the wintertime when there was no orgs. So if it was, even in the heavy spring, when you got the cold, wet, windy days where you couldn't row and rain, we would go on, on five or six mile commando runs, crossing streams, climbing mountains, rocks through different areas of the park. It was, every day was different with Ted. There was no, you know, you'd have uh, the rope going up to the ceiling in the gym. So we had to climb up. And some people said, uh, you know, what if I fall? He goes, well, we'll catch you. Okay, there's no nets. With Ted, there was no nets in life. You forged ahead. And do you have the sense that there will never be anyone like him ever again? A man of product of his time, the opportunities in life that were different then? I think the opportunities were different. Coaches were different. Now everyone seems to be very structured and planned. And, you know, you're doing this, this three or four week training block. And then you have this day off and then you have other training blocks. Coaches tend to be vanilla. Ted was a violent rainbow. If the weather was bad, we would do something else. He would always change. And he came from a different background. With Ted, there was no, have you gone through the five levels of coaching from the national organization? You know, like in the United States, you have to take all these crazy courses okay. in order to be a coach. But with Ted, you know, he was obviously twice Olympic medalist. He knew what he was doing. So away he went. And he was, I mean, in the... He coached for Penn for 20 years, and then he took two years off before he began to coach Olympians at Penn AC. And during those interim two years, he worked for me. I was running an international trading company, and I had ships constantly discharging around the world. And we were selling a lot of frozen chicken to Iraq in the middle of the Iran-Iraq war. And it would go by container, frozen container, be discharged in Mersin, in Turkey, and then it would be trucked by local truckers into Baghdad. You know, with Scud missiles going off and explosions and those type of things. But the chicken was arriving not fresh. It was not, sometimes it was not frozen or had been frozen and refrozen. So I said, Ted, you're the man for the job. Fix it for me. So Ted flew to Turkey, got the Mersin. Followed, just rented a car, followed the car, the trucks from yep. Turkey 
all the way through the mountains into Iraq. Called me from Baghdad. You, I mean, you could hear explosions in the background. He goes, God, I think I have it figured out. He went back to Turkey, went to a sporting goods store, bought mm -hmm. a cricket bat. And then he'd follow the truckers. And when they would pull off the road to sleep at night, they would turn the compressor off to save petrol. So Ted would bang on the side of the doors in a war zone, make them wake up, turn the compressors back on. That solved the problem. I bet it did. And they not never did rowing again. Coaches, yeah, not many rowing coaches could do that. Good. And, and in that story, don't jump to conclusions. Collect your evidence before you act and then act appropriately to get your point across. No more, no less. Exactly. And once he did that to about 10 trucks, the word went out to the truckers. There's this really large guy with a bat. Don't turn your compressors off. I just want to know why he found a cricket bat in Turkey, not a cricketing country. I think there's more cricket than there's baseball. Ah, similar, similar tool of the trade, of course. Yes, yes. Now, I'm sure he would have preferred a baseball bat. But, but he forgot to pack. Only with the cricket bat. Well, he didn't know what to expect. He couldn't very well pack a handgun when there's plenty of weapons in Iraq. He just needed something. He needed what he called a persuader. I've heard that phrase before, usually used about bending pins on riggers where the pitch has gone off. Yes. But this Tell was a, very large, a large persuader. A large persuader. Tell us another one, one of the more personal ones. Oh, another uh, fixing story? Well, here's a, well, this is one from, uh, let me just find this story. Okay, this is from Jim Dietz, who was on three Olympic teams. And I was with him here for that. Uh, Ted was a leader of men, whether it came from his discipline in rowing or time in the military. Ted knew how to lead, and people were ready to follow. Upon arriving in Caracas for the 1983 Pan American Games, the team quickly realized that our boats were late to arrive. Not one to miss a workout, Ted announced that he was going for a run around town, and all were welcome to join. Within minutes, Ted was leading 20 or so of us through some of the most depressed and unwelcoming barrios around the village. He was Captain America, and Rocky Balboa rolled into one as he led us through the neighborhoods. We were being chased at times by stray dogs, and some of the local kids also joined in and ran along. Ted, always a diplomat, would hand kids our USA pins and sign autographs whenever asked. Despite this rough environment, as we followed him through the hills, everyone felt safe because Ted was there. And we have a live question from Stephen, who is watching. He says, Amazon says the book will be released in the USA on November the 15th. He says, and I would love to see that race plan from the 1983 Pan Am Games, which you rode in Ticklepenny's Folly, which I bought from you in 1985 while I was at Penn. I'm guessing that's the name of the boat. Yes. He said, we, we met again at 2019 Henley when my son was stroking the Penn Lightweight Four there. Ted recruited me to Penn the fall of 1983 
but by the time I arrived at Penn for my campus visit, he'd moved on and Bruce was the interim coach. I'm sad I didn't get to be coached by him. But then, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> Stephen, opportunity. that is fantastic. And how, how wonderful that here we are recording live and someone watching is, as you predicted, Sean, everybody knew Ted. Everybody knew Ted. That race plan actually didn't make the final cut. Because... But there were other race plans in there. Okay. In fact, one of the funniest race plans was not really a race plan. It was probably a 12-month plan by Ted. They were at the World Championships, and Ted had uh, Coxless 4 won the World Championships, I think, in Nottingham in 86. He also had the silver medal in 88 and 92 in the Olympics. But he was having these secret discussions with Impacher. And then a year later, you know, the boat's in the boathouse and Ted asked for an extended and reinforced bow. No one knew what it was about, but a week before the national championships, Ted cut the hole in the front of the bow by the bow man and it revealed that it was a reinforced coxswain area. And Ted had recruited a dwarf and she wasn't even three feet high. And she actually laid in the bottom of the boat. The bowman still steered with his foot. And they won the race. And she just sat there. She just sat there. She was blowing bubbles during the race. She was having a great time. And then, of course, there was a protest. Yep. Because how can you put a coxswain and not have them steer? So there was a committee meeting. And... Mm -hmm. uh, Jim Dietz was head of the committee referee, and he said, no, there's no violation of the rules. It was just Ted being ingenious. <laughs> he and there's photos of that. that, photos of that in the book. And that's one of the stories that everyone discounts. He said, there's no way that's even possible. It's impossible. Right. right. So they're all there. So to our listeners, you can get the book, from Amazon and obviously all other good bookstores. Sean, just to end, what do you think are the biggest challenges for a coach passing on their knowledge and expertise? I think the hardest thing is getting people's attention now. Now, I'm not saying this as an old guy. What, what, I heard it today on the radio. It was OAP, overage person. No, it's not. That is old age pensioner. And it's what they call people oh. in the UK when you receive your, um, you know, uh, your pension from the state. OAP. Okay. Because here in New Zealand, they asked me if I have a gold card. And I That's said, true. no, I work for a living still. That, but you can still have a gold card and travel free on the buses. Going to take the government's money. They take enough of it as it is. I think the hardest peak, uh, hard part is getting people's attention because there's so many things going on now. Obviously, all centered around your telephone. And if you have your helicopter parents, you're running to three or four different events every day. Even as you get to university, I mean, there's all the social media. 
Whereas before, you rode, you studied, you ate, and you slept. There wasn't a whole lot else to do. And I think people had a longer attention span then. And now, even if I'm watching some of the coaches talk to a crew, if they're in their civvies, some of them are still looking at cell phones. One of the things that I do like about today's age is the ability to rapidly find answers. So I had a long discussion about the physics of rowing with someone whose knowledge of physics was reasonably low. And I was able to find a competent short explainer video with competent diagrams that help to explain some of the movements of how you move relative to your boat, relative to the bank. And so little things like that, I think, help in some way. It doesn't detract from what you said about attention spans. I agree. It's great for finding information. But I wonder, is that just 5% of their phone time? Or computer time is finding information and the rest is showing off whatever. Yes. So the book of Ted is going to be the perfect Christmas gift, holiday gift, Thanksgiving gift for everybody. It's a hardback. Is that correct? Yes. It's a, what we call a coffee table book. Yes. So I could give you the definition in millimeters, but it's probably nine inches by 13 inches. Solid bound in Germany. The mm -hmm. first uh, edition is already sold out. We've uh -huh. already ordered the second edition two weeks ago, which will be available towards the end of November. So if you order and it's not in stock yet, it'll get there. And we're also putting some in Amazon Germany and Amazon UK so you can purchase it internationally. Fantastic. And obviously put it on your list for your the love person in your life who will buy you whatever you need. And it's designed, I'm guessing, to be dipped in and out of rather than sat down and read cover to cover. Yes. I wanted it to be something you could just stick on the table and just glance through it. If you're having a bad day, you want a few laughs, you want a smile, you want some compassion. It's a great book to pick up and read one chapter at a time. So buy 10 and give them to all your rowing friends and non-rowing friends. I actually think it's a good book for any coach in any sport in how to be a leader and a mentor for young people. And on that note, I will thank you very much, Sean, for joining me for the first ever rowing chat that you've done and for taking the time to do this. It matters that we collect and share the history of our sport and the characters in our sport. Not that we want to copy them, but just that the greater sum of knowledge I have, the more experience I can draw on when a situation arises and a dead body appears beside the eight when I'm coaching on the river. But remember, rowing is a unique sport because of its history, because of the boathouse, because of the the redolence of sweat and beer and old age, that all those stories are handed down. No other sport really has that. And I think that's what makes rowing unique and why so many people continue to row into their 70s and 80s. If you think of all the people that play football, they're not doing it at 40 or 70. And football in meaning 
soccer and gridiron, yeah. however you want to define football. Yeah. And rugby. Yeah. And rugby. You won't. Your body will not take it. Right. Rowing, generally you can survive. And from one of our live watchers who clearly knows you, they say the Colgan Brothers rock. Thank you. All those fans out there. And thanks to you for giving us the time. And I will add the book to the link on the Faster Masters Rowing website, which if you just search for best rowing books, you will find it. And there will be links on there as to where to buy. Now, so, for all my fans out there that might have Ted stories that are not in the book, please send them to me. I'm sure it will be a, another edition in a few years. What a splendid idea. I very much look forward to that. So thank you, Rebecca. Been, thank you. And this has been Rowing Chat, the podcast for the sport of rowing. Until next time. <laughs>